Hey guys, welcome to Devoted Devotions. For those of you who are new, I'm Tandy and I hope you enjoy the episode. Right, let's get into our memory verse. John 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's bow our heads as we ask the Holy Spirit to join us. Heavenly Father, may your name be magnified in all the earth. In humble recognition of who you are, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and learn about what is required of us. Father, we ask that you may pour out your Holy Spirit and lead us to all truth, that we may be convicted and ready to stand firm for you. All this we ask in the mighty name of your Son, who died for us on the cross of Calvary. Amen. In the previous episode, we looked at the book of Jonah. We see God's role as divine creator, savior, and the divine judge being magnified. We also learned about how God takes the mission of salvation very seriously. It was a really interesting episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, please go check it out. No middle ground. Did you guys know that the average human being makes about 33,000 decisions per day? 33,000! And that's just like an average, right? You know, you decide what you're going to wear, you decide what you're going to eat, you decide where you're going to go, you decide how you're going to make your hair, you decide whether you're going to put on perfume or not. You know, we have all these minor decisions that we make every single day that we literally do subconsciously. We don't even pay attention to the fact that we're actually making those decisions. But have you ever thought about how there are decisions that we make that affect our spiritual lives? the type of things we look at, the type of music we listen to, the type of lives that we live, you know, how healthy we are overall, you know, the type of friends that we have around us. Those could affect, you know, our spiritual lives. Never think about those decisions. But anyways, let me get back onto the topic. No middle ground is basically addressing the fact that in our spiritual walk with God, in our existence right now, There is no middle ground. You are either with God or you are against him. There is no middle ground. Whenever there's a cultural issue, you'll find that people have really strong views. Some people usually support the culture and they're all in favor. And people who obviously don't support it are strongly opposed to it. And sometimes you get those who always want to be neutral and not get involved and not step on anyone's toes as to not offend anyone. But this is not a biblical practice. All throughout the Bible, we're presented with one of two choices. In Genesis 7 verses 22 to 23, everything that had the breath of life that was on the face of the earth and was not in Noah's ark died. The people in that generation had a choice, get on the ark or stay on the land. The choice was yours, and those who didn't make the right choice died. 1 John 5 verses 12, he who has the son has life. You either have the son or you don't have the son. Matthew 7 verses 24 to 27, 
Jesus makes an illustration about whether you will build your house on the sand or whether you build your house on a rock. The word of God literally teaches that there is no middle ground for us human beings. At the end of time and at the end of this great controversy, sin, disobedience and rebellion will be eradicated. Each one of us will either have eternal life that God originally planned for us or eternal damnation, which is an everlasting separation from the almighty creator. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 9. The Bible doesn't seem to appear to present any other option for us. So what fate will ours be? The answer ultimately rests within ourselves. We have a choice before us, life or death. Today we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Please do read this in your own time. There are such amazing truths packed in these two chapters. Just to briefly summarize, chapter 2 is about the first Sabbath, summarizing creation and introducing Adam. God makes a beautiful garden for the man he created and instructs the man not to eat of the knowledge of good and evil. God creates Eve and in the third chapter she gets deceived by the enemy. She eats the fruit and they are evicted from the garden and they live the rest of their lives under a curse. In the Garden of Eden, God provided Adam and Eve with every single thing they could ever need. Firstly, they were in God's presence, they had purpose, and they had food. They had the three things that their body, soul, and spirit needed the most. Your physical body needs food to survive. Your soul needs purpose to thrive. And your spirit well, that needs God's presence to stay alive. This is peak existence where every single need is met. You'll forever feel incomplete if one of these needs is not met. You can have all the material possessions in the world, but if you are not in God's presence living out his purpose for you, you will never be content. You will never find joy. You will always feel like something is missing because it is. Let's take a step back though. So the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, right? And so the version we read is a translation of those Hebrew scrolls. For those of you who are bilingual, you'd understand how things get lost in translation. There are some words that you can only express in your language. English has the same problem too. For example, if I were to say that house cost me an arm and a leg to someone who had no context of what that meant, they wouldn't understand. They probably actually think that the house literally cost me an actual arm and an actual leg, you know? Just to illustrate how you're bound to misunderstand the Bible if you don't read it in context. And you find such gems when you research the meaning of the original words in Hebrew. The Bible comes to life in a way that you can't begin to express. So I do encourage you to look up the names and the places that you read. I promise you it is the best Easter egg hunt you will ever go on. So if you look up the word Adam in Hebrew, you'll see that it means human or man. Sometimes it can be translated as dirt and sand, which makes sense because he was taken out of the ground. Eve means life or living. Sometimes it's breath. Eden means paradise. Now this brings new light on what the account of Adam and Eve is about. 
So let's take those words that we have translated and stick them into the original story. God takes human, Adam, life, Eve, and places it in paradise, Eden, and gives them a choice to serve him or to know evil. I highly recommend going back to the Hebrew text because so many things get lost in translation. Every time I read God's word like this, the more it affirms to me that literally no mere mortal could have written it. Every word is God-breathed. Every word carries life. Knowing this helps us bring the story closer to us, you know. Adam and Eve stop being characters who are far away, that we're detached to. Characters who we blame for sin and the destruction and the terrible world that we're in right now. They become a picture of our life. God places us humans in a situation where we have to choose if we're going to obey him or not. You know, God is actually the most phenomenal author. He is giving us a historical account while simultaneously using it as an allegory for our human existence. You can't get any better than that, guys. <laughs> Honestly, when the Spirit is leading, a book, a chapter, and a verse that you've read over and over again become entirely new, and you learn new ways to apply it to your daily life. The fact that God gives us free will is just really fascinating to me. He gives them everything that they need, and he only gives them one law. The instruction serves to fulfill God's desire to give us free will. You can have everything in the garden, just not that. And the choice is up to you whether you'll listen. And because he's truthful, he tells them up front exactly what's going to happen if they decide to disobey. They will surely die. I hope these are not facts that we gloss over when we read this. Sin and disobedience literally separate us from God. And when we're out of God's presence, we begin to die. God is our source of life as established in Genesis 2 verses 7. He breathed life into Adam and Adam became a conscious being. So we can't possibly think that we can sustain life without him. Just think about how your phone's battery dies as soon as it's unplugged from the source of power. When God told Adam not to eat from that tree, he was advising him in the best way to preserve the life that he had. God's laws are not supposed to be an inconvenience. They should not be a drag to keep. It's the blueprint for life. God's laws protect us. Parameters protect us. So when Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree, they chose death. God gave mankind the option and we choose to be outside of God's presence. He warned us, but we don't listen. Our federal head fell into sin and caused all those under him to reap death. And the saddest part is that Eve disobeyed God based on a lie. She was deceived. She believed in something that was not true. She believed the opposite of what God had told them. Could that be what the story is teaching us? Could that be what Genesis is trying to establish for us? The practice of taking God's word as the truth. The practice of standing on God's word, even if 
someone comes and says the opposite of what God's word says? Are we able to stand? Are we able to rely on God's word? Are we able to see right through deception because we know God's word? Because we know what he has told us? It's scary because if we don't, the enemy literally capitalizes on that. He will use it to his advantage. God placed them in an area where he could be with them also. He wants to be with us. And the challenge now falls on us whether we will stay in the garden. Remember, God will never force you to worship him. You have to want to do it. Are you in a place where God has put you? Are you in an environment where you can hear him speak to you? And which tree are you eating from? As established earlier, when Adam and Eve ate of that tree, they chose death. But the story doesn't end there. I've noticed that many preachers don't talk about hell that much. It's a topic they tend to shy away from, when it should actually be one of the first things we talk about when we talk about the gospel. This is about salvation from hell. People generally believe in the existence of hell, but what they don't understand is that they are headed there already. And the issue is that the world that we live in is a world where sin is so freely exploited. Sin is so ingrained in our culture that almost every imaginable sin is acceptable. We are very comfortable with sin because our society places very few consequences on people for sin. So when people grow up in a world where things that were once defined as sin are no longer defined as sin, and behaviors have no consequences, there's a warped sense of good and evil and a distorted understanding of justice. We don't know what sin is, but it's definitely not what I do. It's only sin if it harms someone else, right? Anything that I do in and of itself is, is not sin. I'm free to do whatever I want. There are no consequences. If the culture imposes no consequences and the family imposes no consequences, society places no stigma for sinful behavior, people get so used to sinning without consequences that when you begin to introduce the idea that they'll have to pay forever for every sin, it's such a foreign concept. People sin without immediate consequences and to try convince them that somewhere down the road there are deferred consequences. It's a hard sell. And Romans chapter 2 says you are storing up wrath against yourself. You aren't getting away with anything. You are just accumulating iniquity, all of which is going to be stored and judged. They're so used to getting away with sin and there's no system that teaches people that sin has immense consequences and people just are so comfortable in sin. And we need to tell people that every unforgiven sin, every sin committed by a person who rejects Jesus Christ will justly be punished by God in hell. And I hear people saying, oh no, let's not talk about hell. It's just so negative. But this isn't new. Deuteronomy 32 verses 22, the anger of God reached into hell. Matthew 5 verses 22, everywhere Jesus went, he preached about hell. Matthew chapter 10 verses 28, Matthew chapter 11, Matthew 18, Matthew chapter 23. When we talk about salvation, we have to use the word. 
Salvation is about a rescue. The word itself means deliverance. The act of being rescued. And the question is, from what? Contemporary corrupt Christianity would offer up a psychological or even a material substitute for hell. They'll tell you that Jesus wants to save you from loneliness, purposelessness, or even poverty. Jesus wants to save you from your depression. And this is not entirely true. He wants to save you from hell, the lake of fire, a real place called hell. Salvation is a rescue. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he defined it as a conscious eternal punishment and he warned sinners to escape hell because of its terrible reality. You know what the scariest thing for mankind is? God is good. Think about it. God is good. And the scary part is that we are not. So now, what does a good God do with someone like you? What does a good God do with someone like me? For example, you know how corrupt criminals, whenever they're told that they, the judge is corrupt, they know that they'll get off easy. But when they're told that the judge is not corrupt and cannot be bribed, they know that they will have the full extent of the law thrown at them. Modern day preachers will tell you that God is good and you'll leave feeling like you're released from any sense of responsibility. And I'm here to tell you that God is good. And you ought to be terrified because you are not good. I am not good. And the next problem is that no one tells us what this means. What does it mean that you're not good? We always look at ourselves and think, mm, I'm not that bad though. But Adam sinned once and he threw the entire world into total chaos. We really don't understand who God is. He really is good. And we aren't. He really is love. And we are not. So how can this good, loving God let an evil, loveless people into fellowship with him. Why can't he simply forgive? Because he is just. You know, we grow up in a society that is so unjust where there are no consequences. And the biggest theological problem is that if God is just, he can't just forgive you unless his justice is satisfied. And that's what happened at the cross. That's why the cross is everything. It's absolutely everything. On that tree, the only servant that Yahweh has ever had hung there. A perfect man. And the sins of all God's people were cast on him. And all the wrath of God's holy hatred for evil, sin, and for the wicked was satisfied. Everything that should fall on your head, everything that should fall on my head, fell on the head of God's only begotten Son, in whom he was well pleased. 
His own father crushed him under the full force of his wrath because someone had to pay for you. Someone had to pay for me. And it was him. You can study the gospel your whole life and you'll still never understand its glory in its entirety. It's, it's the gospel. It's God reconciling the world to himself, being so just that he's not able to ignore sin. He has to deal with the sin of his people. And so he must satisfy his justice and appease his wrath. And he does so through the death of his son. And he arises again three days later, a declaration that the sacrifice had been accepted as an atonement for the sin of God's people. The invitation for you to come to Christ should not be reduced to you have to pray this prayer or ask Jesus to come in. It's a proclamation that God commands all men everywhere that you have to repent and believe in the gospel. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 15 to 20. See this day I have set before you life and good, death and evil. Verses 19. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. God has done everything possible to give us an opportunity at spending life eternal with him. When his only law was broken, he established the terms of his covenant with the Israelites. And when they broke his law, he sent his son that his justice may be reconciled because the wages of sin is death. And because God never changes, that rule still applies. I'm going to repeat this, but bring it a bit closer to home. When we break God's law, we deserve to die. And we have all sinned and come short of his glory. But he is so merciful that he sent his only begotten son who left the glory in heaven to become a man and die that we might live. Greater love has no man than this, than a man that lays down his life for his friends. How could you not love a man who would do all of this for you? How will you escape if you neglect such great salvation? Hebrews 2 verses 3. In closing, God respects our choices. He will never force anyone to worship him. And so you get to decide where your soul will end up. The choices you make will testify as to whether you will inherit life or reap damnation. God is not a self-help tool that exists to make your life more comfortable or a key to wealth. If you think this, then you miss the problem that Christianity actually solves. This is about life or death. There is no room to be neutral. Believe in your heart in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary and choose life before it's too late for your soul. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13. This is very serious, guys. We need to start approaching life from what does God want me to do? What does the Bible say? Are my decisions pleasing to God? Because there is no middle ground. You either eat from the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Choose life. 
I pray we all choose life. There is no space to be neutral here. When we address other topics that will come up in future, I hope we keep these in mind. Parameters protect us. The rules that God has set in place and the laws that he set there preserve our life. When we disobey them, we are actively choosing death. And there's no middle ground. When God says this is an abomination in his sight, you don't get to play neutral or dilly-dally around those laws. I would urge you to take this matter very seriously. There is no middle ground. This is the time when we need to start standing for the truth of God's word in a society that would have us be silent. We don't get to be impartial. We make many decisions every single day, but how do they affect our soul? When you don't take a stand for sin, you enable it. The Bible is a signpost in the road of life. Those that want to follow the Lord, turn right. And those who don't, stop and yell at the sign. Dear Jesus, we take this opportunity to thank you for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. We deserve to die, but you give us a chance to live. We pray that as we come to you in repentance of all the choices that we've made that oppose God's law, that you may forgive us. We want to be under your protection. May you pour out your Holy Spirit once more and help us resist the enemy's schemes. Amen. With that being said, this isn't a journey we are on alone. We have to go through it together. And sometimes we stumble because we don't know. But I encourage you to pray and ask the Creator to show you the way. Read your Bible, guys. Read your Bibles. If this was relevant for you, please help more people get devoted devotions. Like and share. I really appreciate you guys spreading the message. If you have any suggestions or topics you'd like to be discussed, please feel free to drop us an email at devoteddevotions311 at gmail.com. From your host, Tandy. Thank you for listening. Stay blessed.